0: Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Thanks for tuning in. High-intensity training is paramount in the scope of athletic performance. At some point, or every game for that matter, athletes are called on to exhibit high amounts of power, maximal sprints, cuts, jumps, and exhibitions of force. In training, we also have the polarity. We have low-level, low-intensity warm-up drills and exercises, corrective exercises, technical drills. And it's interesting to watch things as athletes move along that polarity, as they move from these lower-level technical movements into maximal expressions of speed. And oftentimes, there's a lot of falling off the tracks. There's a disconnect between these lower-level correctives and lower-level elements and then maximal expressions. And at that point, we need to ask ourselves, is there a better way to do this? Are there better constraints to put in the program that help athletes actually improve their technique in high performance, high intensity exercise? Is there a more effective and efficient way to organize this training session in light of high intensity? I'm excited to have our guests, Kyle Dobbs and Matt Domney, on the show today. Kyle is the owner and founder of Compound Performance and has been a guest on this show several times. He has experienced substantial success as a coach and educator and has an extensive biomechanics and human movement background. Matt Domney is the head coach at Compound Performance. He's a competitive powerlifter in the USPA at the 275-pound weight class. And in addition to powerlifting coaching, Matt has years of experience in general population fitness training. On the show today, Kyle and Matt will be talking about their take on building in constraints to really help help those high-intensity outputs and high-intensity exercises, and what to make of some of the lower-level biomechanics, and uh, I have air quotes here, corrective exercise options out there. We'll also be talking today about variability within heavy strength training methods. We'll be looking at the balance of high outputs in sport play versus high outputs in the gym. Kyle and Matt will be giving their take on movement screens, warm-ups, and more. This was a really fun conversation. Had a blast talking to these guys, and I know you'll enjoy this show. Let's get to episode three thirty three with Kyle Dobbs and Matt Domney. Yeah, it, it is. It is. I, this is something that intrigues me, just because I think that you know, powerlifting too can be such a because it's such a singular element, like training element relative to I guess just training for sport. Uh, I think the AI type type system where it's like very spreadsheet dominant or oriented it seems to me like that would be a lot more effective. It's a more of a linear venture. It's more of a singular goal. So I don't, it's never purely linear, of course, but like, it seems like a more linear system could be more effective there versus creating the ultimate, you know, program for a soccer player, it, you know, the weightlifting program where there's inherently a lot more variability and complex mm-hmm. factors. So, because it, I'm, it's just interesting to think like the, the only AIs that I'm aware of in training our powerlifting ai type Mm -hmm. there hasn't been anything else yet and so it seems to me that that's probably the reason why
1: yeah i would look i would agree with that completely it's just a significantly easier way to kind of organize stress in a way that allows people to recover and perform if we're looking at eventually building out an ai coaching model for uh sports for like actual sports it's going to be extremely difficult to try to figure out how to load manage that while Managing everybody else's different positions, individual play times, and all sorts of other recovery factors that you have to look at with an actual court athlete or a, sp- or a field athlete as opposed to somebody who just does
0: the accessories for real sports. Yeah, I shouldn't even say basketball. Too. I even like, let's just say sprinting and track, 100-meter yeah. dash, because even 100 meters is more – it's almost like there's – um I don't know the, it's not X, maybe exponential, maybe belt gradations on a bell curve. Like I think even when you go from the squat to the hundred meters, you, you mm-hmm. took a big jump in degrees of freedom and variability mm-hmm. already to the point that, and even the, the potential strategies, the further out you get, the more distance you get into you know track running or whatever, yeah. the more strategies could get utilized too. So it, to me, it's interesting too, because I look at, well, how do we, you know, there, there is training. It's almost like if you're a strength coach with team sports you're in many ways you are a stress manager and part of that stress management is the natural variability in your lifting and you actually don't want to like you could train your athletes like a power lifter but then they don't get variability and that's probably not going to work out as well for their highest you know needs and so to me it's interesting to think about well this is where it all lifting is where this all come from came from and how do we look at it on the different ends of the spectrum with how does a power lifter train variability versus what are you looking for in the gym and I think that's from my understanding, the trend is for athletic performance has been moving away from like, you know, more 5 3 1 to like more of a, you know, in the middle, like easy strength or 1 by 20 ish, you know, that kind of, kind of, or that kind of vibe for, for sports where they need more built in variability for the, the not um, sport yeah. portion. Which is great. And I think it's
1: where it's going to need to end up going because there needs to be a clear differentiation between the two. Obviously, there's still going to be points like Kyle was talking about when you're assessing an individual's rate limiters and everything like that. Where max strength or motor neuron recruitment or rate, like late rate of force development, where these special, like specified qualities, are going to be important to coach and important to train if you have somebody who is limited in those capacities. But as a whole, it doesn't need to be SBD and squat uh, powerlifting specific style program. It's just not going to give them the same return on investment.
2: Yeah, and, and I mean that's even where, you know, for if if I do have somebody who is a soccer player, is a basketball player, like any field, sport, court, sport, athlete, and their, their strength or or just force production, you know, we'll say is the rate limiter it, that is what's holding them back. You know, again, like the the exercises I choose there might look like SBD purely because those are probably the most efficient ways to create the most force production, right? And to kind of create that, elicit that kind of stressor for that intended response, right? I, I'm probably going to do a lot of bilateral sagittal lifts if I want to create the most force, if that's the neurological output that I want to create, not so much because I want to increase the skill of a squat deadlift or bench, but more so just because I want to train that quality at a really high level, right? So I'm I'm probably going to be doing things like, and again, even then, like I'm probably going to use a trap bar instead of a barbell just because it is more efficient. And, and again, it's like most, you know, quote unquote, most people can lift more with a trap bar. Well. Duh. You know, so for that point, like I don't need to do a barbell for a basketball player. I'll probably use a trap bar because I want them to be able to lift the most amount of weight the most amount of times from that perspective. And and same thing, like I might choose a different squat variation. And again, based on, you know, squat for me is is usually a little bit more based on morphology and the people that I'm working with and just how long their limbs are. You know, if I'm working with a six, seven to six nine basketball player, like there might be different variations of the squat that are more efficient for that individual than if i'm working with a five nine person you know just for limb length purposes but yeah i'm just going to pick those exercises because that's the that's the response that i can i can kind of generate with those exercises it's way more efficient than trying to do something that's like unilateral alternating reciprocal Mm -hmm. you know from that perspective right like i can't create a lot of force there but that's also not the intent of those exercises it's just two different tools for two different purposes.
0: Yeah. What's uh, to, that's BD again before you? So I, I should ask squat and deadlift. Oh, um, yeah, I should know that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but to kind and of they, echo the point that, or like to, to build off of the point that Kyle was talking about there with specifically like a trap bar deadlift. And Joel, your point about degrees of freedom and movement, that's an area where I think trap bar deadlifts for athletes are, is going to be just significantly better than any other variation of a deadlift. Because what I can look at with that is you can perform each rep slightly differently and just yeah, work on true. completing the task, right? So if you want to give somebody a little bit more degrees of freedom, doing a trap bar deadlift and not really caring if it's more hingy or more squatty or more of a hybrid movement in between each one is going to be a significantly more useful variation of a way that you can continuously drive output with a person and allow them to push that more without having to worry about the secondary and tertiary implications of that, right? Where if I'm looking at that as the power lifter, I would be then looking at that like, oh shit, well, this, sorry if I'm not allowed to swear, okay. this person did- Two sets with their with a hip hinge and then three sets with more of a knee bend. So it's like okay, now I have to then qualify those first two step those first two sets as hip extension and hamstring volume, and those last three sets as quad dominant volume. So now I have to like work on load managing their secondary squat later down in the week or their primary squat later down in the week because they've hit a little bit harder quad volume today than I would have liked them to. As opposed to if I give them a barbell deadlift, then I always know. This is going to be more of a hamstring, glute or hip dominant movement. If it's conventional and more of a quad adductor movement and erector movement, if it's uh, sumo. So I can predict training volume significantly easier with the use of specific implements like barbells, as opposed to
2: trap bars where you can move and you can adjust as you're going. Well, and even, even to back that up, like when I was working with Matt as a coach three years ago or so, we were doing a lot of. Am mm-hmm. you know, for trap bar deadlift, and like I got to a point where, I mean, I think I, I was hitting well over like ten thousand pounds in a set mm-hmm. of total volume. Like I would, I had like did four four fifty five for like twenty eight reps at one point, and you know, people would comment on my on my post. It's like, oh, but like as you were doing it, you were bending your knees too much, and it's like, well, well, yeah, like my my hamstrings, glutes, and like erectors got smoked about halfway through that. And I started using more quads, Yeah,
1: but I wasn't but, done so,
2: training. Yeah. yeah. But the point of the exercise wasn't to isolate my hamstrings. I'll yeah. do an RDL for that. like, if that's what I want to do, it was to complete the most amount of reps at that weight on a trap bar. Right. So again, task completion is very different than trying to identify a specific way to complete a task. And I think that's where, like, I got tons of variability in that, where you look over the course of all those reps, I integrated just about everything as things fatigued, as things occluded, I just brought in more muscle groups until I got to the point where I was at full failure, Yeah, you know, from a, from a task perspective. And, and I think it's, again, it's just identifying, like, what are you trying to train? Are you trying to train how many times you complete this task? Or are you trying to train the hamstrings
0: specifically? Right, and those are two different. Those are two different exercise selections at that point. But I'll have to go back and find that video and put it in the show notes. I was going to say oh, too- it's
2: it's on Instagram somewhere. It was, <laughs> it was way was deep, deep. Yeah, well, yeah it was, I have to. It it just probably have to deep, scroll, it's probably yeah, deep.
0: Trying to find a video. It's like, oh, I know this video was three years yeah, ago. You're just sitting there, there. forever. It's and-
2: there. It was. Uh, yeah, I do remember it was a rough day the next day. <laughs>
0: it's interesting like i think in the scope of track and field training too and but like this is built in in team sports is, is the motor learning based fatigue mm-hmm. and like if you're a track runner like a 200 meter runner you run a 300 and you get a little bit the last hundred of that you're having fatigue oh, yeah. induced changes to your running technique but those aren't in track I, and I don't know how this fits the policy but i know in track i those are usually not bad unless it just looks like total shit like then you know, but usually it's like you, you see an athlete trying to hold it together. They haven't totally lost it. There's a little bit of subtle like fatigue and but they're they're managing it. And I think that's that's really valuable with the degrees of freedom that exist in sprinting. Now, if I had that sprinter run at 800, that second 400 is probably going to be unvaluable level of degrees of freedom because it's going to look terrible. But there's that sweet spot that I think is really beneficial. But in team sport, especially like the intermittent ones like soccer and basketball, we're like run up and down, you have to jump a bunch of times under fatigue. I I personally think that is extremely valuable. Like I don't see how that could be a negative really for the most part. And I say that coming from being like a high jump coach, getting basketball players who the less basketball they played, the worse they got, you know, like like that kind of thing. So it's like, clearly that is good. And that's also makes me think about like a one by 20 system. Like why Like one by 20, like that's uh, there has to be that in a one by 20 set, too. Like what you're saying with the hex bar deadlift, like that, of course, exists. And but but you'll talk to like like Kieran and Flat and Jake Jensen, they're talking about uh Jeff Moyer, talking about the good successes you have when you have an athlete who is explosive in their sport and then goes and does one by 20. They can ride that for a really long time, but the question is just when do they need that more like pure output motor recruitment to also. At what point is that necessary to bring in the bylaw, the, the, the SBD? I got it now. When is that so, necessary to bring that in?
1: I mean, uh, the way that I would look at that is I would just look at the velocity demands of the particular movements and the particular sports that that person is going under, right? So if I'm looking at somebody who is training basketball or is like playing basketball or playing soccer or doing something like this. I know that having them grind through a heavy single is probably never going to ever be something that's going to ever be specific enough for them or have any kind of specific neurological carryover for them to actually perform better on a field, right? Because if we're looking at this and we're training this like based off of just the forced velocity curve in general, as we start getting to maximum strength, it's just everything is slow, right? So I don't need to necessarily train that specific quality with any of those people, so using things like that and using things like conjugate style banded training or things like that, where they're getting a little bit more explosive and they're looking at producing like a like increase in their late stage rate of force development and pushing really hard into a movement, like an ascending load as they're going ends up being a little bit more valuable as long as the goal of the movement is not to actively slow down while you're training with somebody like that, I would like each rep of a triple to look the same speed. Whereas with a power lifter, I'm actually looking for a decent amount of velocity drop off to see how they're performing and see what they can kind of grind
0: through. Yeah. Grind tolerance. Yeah. It's interesting interesting to think about it that way. I I feel like too, for a sports, like I would be curious of this, like the GPS and sports science world probably has a lot to offer here, but like a sports that maybe have innately like faster accelerations, more of them. Like American, like if you're the running back or a receiver in American football, mm-hmm. I would imagine that maybe I'm not 100 percent sure, but your just pure neurological output is higher than maybe someone who plays soccer. You know, who runs more and you I don't know. I mean, it's all explosive, right? But maybe the football player could even do better with a one by tw- fourteen or twenty. I I always like fourteens. So I'm like twenties is just like I, I, I mean twenties are have, rough. 20 a yeah. lot, um, <laughs> but I, part of me wonders, you know, what would, would maybe, like, kind of like what you were saying, if someone needs more force, maybe it's the soccer or the f- basketball player who maybe needs a little bit more of that. And yeah, hexed out, but also still has some more degrees of variability than a straight bar, like you said, Matt. But I, I, part of me wonders if that could almost be more uh, to something to look at, like you look at player load as per GPS, how much acceleration, what's the what's the rate, what's the, you know, that, and then maybe that could be an insight into how much of the SBD maybe they ideally need. But I don't know.
2: It's, it's just kind of, it's, it's thoughts interesting. Kicking Like We work with uh, a, a friend of ours who runs a gym in New Jersey, Pasquale, uh, Pursuit Performance, shout out, um, who works <laughs> with a lot of like quite a few collegiate and MLS soccer players. And, and that's something that, you know, he and I talk about all the time. We talk weekly on programming and like these guys and girls, they can run forever. Like they have more, they've got capacity to spare. Right. But, they're traditionally not very strong, right? So, force production, acceleration, things like that, even even decelerating and, and cutting at fast speeds ends up being the rate limiter for a lot of these athletes. And that's a lot of what he trains. A lot of it is like bilateral lifts, and then like intensive plyometrics and things of like that. Things that challenge force production and stiffness uh, because they they're doing extensives all day. These, I mean, these athletes will run you know, three to five miles a match sometimes, you know, over the course of a, of a singular match or practice. So it's like, they, they get a ton of contact points, but they're very low level throughout the course of their practice and their sport, but they don't get very many like max effort jumps to hone that ability through their sport. Right. And so he ends up training that a lot because that's the biggest area of opportunity for a lot of those athletes to get better is increasing like neurological systems and efficiency from that perspective so he'll do trap bar he'll do like uh box squats for concentric force you know from it like with an ssb or something of that nature he'll do like heavy sled pushes for for good concentric strength because a lot of what they do is already so uh just extensive and and almost eccentric in nature that they just don't get the power production of the force outputs in their actual sport but when they do need it they don't have it for those some those little circumstances You know, I think we talked about basketball on a a prior call. It's like kind of similar, like how many max effort jumps does an athlete actually take in the course of a basketball game? Like true max effort, like not that many. A lot of it is like submaximal, like rebounds, repeat hops, things of that nature. Like unless they're on a fast break and they have the time to actually gather themselves, there's not a ton of like max effort jumping there either, which is kind of counterintuitive to what a lot of people I think also believe.
0: Yeah, I think the way I played basketball, in hindsight, just for me, and then even, you know, talked a little bit with, um, you know, I was talking with Daniel Boval a little bit about different players who have different profiles mm-hmm. in the NBA. And I think I played basketball ex- not efficiently is a good way to put it. I sprinted <laughs> and jumped hard. And I think actually that allowed me to not need to go as heavy. Just intuitively, yeah. I, I, I did really well when I was playing, yeah. just playing basketball and just doing like a set of 10 barbell step ups, you know, something simple. Because I played so damn hard, but I, I think now if I played old man basketball, I would not. I probably would need more. <laughs> I find that I, I do need more neurologically stimulating stuff outside of sports sometimes. So, I uh, it's it's interesting to think about, like yeah, sport and, and the more sport data tells us at some point, like sporting what how intense and you know it's I think it's interesting too. Like with powerlifting, it's it's just a given. It's going to be intense. You know, it's going to be extremely neurologically intense and kind of finding well. If you're an athlete, you should have one thing that is extremely neurologically intense, but everything outside of that's like it's increasing it's increasing shades of variability in many ways, yep. you know, just kind of looking at it from that perspective. Um you guys too, I you know, I wanted to ask you. I, I think it was David Gray who was mentioning this like like corrective exercise. People don't train hard enough, but then of course mm-hmm. you can take that spectrum all the way to, you know, I don't know, let's run like you know, a, a marathon, an ex, some some extra marathons in the week and, you know, do the extra, do the cross, all the CrossFit chippers and do Metcons every day or whatever, you know, I mean, there's always a, the balance. So, I'm curious what you guys' take is on, I guess like, you know, with the influx of more corrective, more movement-oriented things, how do you balance that? How do you make sure an athlete is appropriately getting the stimulation they need to, to adapt with and then, but yet still looking at movement quality. Seeing if there's things from that, I don't know, corrective is a good word, but movement quality perspective. How, mm-hmm. how do you balance hard work and movement quality? Do you want to take this first, Kyle, or do you want to go for it? Uh,
2: I'll, I'll talk about it for my, because I think my answer is going to be a little shorter than yours mm-hmm. also probably is. You know, I think, again, the, the, the quote unquote corrective exercise, I think there's also a big issue with just the name itself, you know, what it implies. But I also think it's, it's purposely ambiguous from an industry perspective. Cause you know, I, I made a tweet about corrective exercise last week and had multiple people messaging me about like, well, what's, what's corrective exercise. And it's like, I honestly don't have a good answer for that. It's like, if you imagine, you know, a a rehabilitation exercise or something you would give to somebody coming off an injury, like that's probably what we're going to classify as like corrective exercise, right? Like it's going to be something that's a very low-level stimulus because that person is coming from a deconditioned or a detrained position, and, and I think my issue with a lot of the corrective exercise, you know, to use that term that we see in the industry, is we're using it on people who aren't injured. Yeah. Like we're using it as, as like an actual exercise, and maybe and typically it's like if this if this individual has, you know, kind of recurring chronic issues or whatever, but. You know they're they're happening like under extreme fatigue or under extreme intensity. Well, that's not like a biomechanical issue or that's not necessarily a mechanism issue as much as it's like that's a training or capacity issue, right? Like that's poor load management, you know, and that that might be something where it's like we just need to program better or we just need to get this person stronger relative to that task. Now, the the people who are gonna argue with you know, Matt and I, or or somebody, or even David saying that online are saying, oh, but I don't want my runner to train like a power lifter.
0: When it's like, no, we we don't either. That's
2: not (laughs) never said that. Yeah. yeah, That's a false narrative. Like that's not what we said either. Right. We, we said they need to get stronger, but that's within the context of their sport, right. Mm -hmm. And their activity, that's not, they need to go have a 2000 pound total, right. These are two very different things. So I, I think again, you know, most issues that that we typically see, and in my experience of, you know, 15 plus years working with both gen pop populations and athletic populations is, you know, most people when we start talking about like the need of corrective exercise, they're they're really just not very strong. And, and like strength is the rate limiter. Even most a lot of the stability issues, unless somebody has a neurological disease, a lot of the stability issues I see are people who are just not very strong in relation to managing themselves in space, right? And and I think that's where like a lot of that's just exposures. Can we just get them better at the things they're doing, voila, they get stronger and, and the disability kind of corrects themselves and we don't have to spend a lot of time doing things like active mobility and activation drills and sometimes even like the respiration stuff, which again, not saying those things can't be useful in the right context. But that doesn't mean they're useful in every context. And I think that's where the industry kind of starts getting these things backwards is they see somebody come in and they're like, you know, oh, I see your assessment score. We need to get to the ground and, and do these things, do this algorithm before we ever get you into the strength training process or the progressive overload process or whatever. Um, and th- that's what I see. Maybe that was long. That was longer than I expected <laughs> from that. But that the insights were hitting you as you went <laughs> along. So yeah, <laughs> But that exact
1: uh- thought process and that exact way of thinking has influenced and infiltrated powerlifting as well. Mm -hmm. Where it makes even less sense for these people to have to do a lot of these low level activities and a lot of these things than somebody who is completely deconditioned or somebody who is post severe surgery and like long layoff, right? Like if I have somebody who benches 315, which in powerlifting is not even an impressive bench anymore, and they hurt themselves for- and no, even females. Even so there's females a there's Thompson. a Jen Thompson is a 148 pound female that benches 325. Like it's ne- like completely tested. Like she's just very strong. But looking at that, like those people who are who are doing anything or like and moving any kind of load, the minute we remove load from them, they're gonna just organize into a completely different position as soon as they're loaded again. So what I think corrective exercise needs to move to in powerlifting is finding. The whole point of corrective exercises and rehab or rehabbing things is to find an appropriate entry point to allow somebody to still train and progress while working and dealing with something, right? So if we're looking at this in powerlifting, that could be reducing the range of motion of a given movement, like like a squat or a bench that could be reducing the range of motion of a deadlift and having them do like block pulls or rack pulls that could be reducing it a little bit more and having them do RDLs from a very specific range of motion, like, oh, just to above the knee that'll still allow them to load whatever they're loading in a way that they will continue to get some stimulus and actually train out of it right where if i'm looking at somebody like my perfect example for me is like myself i tore my pec twice this year benching right i had it once in march and then once again in june and i got my pec better i didn't do pushups i didn't i started off with pushups because that was about all i could tolerate at that point that was my entry point there but after pushups were done, I just started benching again. And it's like my corrective exercise was benching through a full range of motion with progressively increased loads week to week to week until the point where I'm now hitting bench PRs again. So it's one of those things that I think a lot of people misunderstand because the stuff that we do or the stuff that you will actually have to do to get to a point is not flashy, it doesn't look good. You can't market it on social media. But it's the stuff that's actually going to work and give you the ability to do something for a longer period of time. One of the things that I see consistently with people who do a tremendous amount of correctives and do a tremendous amount of stuff in powerlifting, particularly that are very, very nonspecific, is when they get back to they always talk about how they're feeling really, really, really good and their joints feel great and their body feels amazing. And it's because they're completely and totally unloaded. And as soon as we get back to any sort of actual training again, number one, either the issues completely and totally flare up again, or they've dropped so many kilos off of their their best lifts that we would have to extend a prep out another 10 weeks to be able to give them a chance at hitting what they've done previously, right? Because there's that whole reintroduction phase where we have to adapt to some sort of a stimulus again. We have to start training the nervous system again because they just haven't been lifting heavy or haven't been doing anything specific enough to train the skill of the particular movement or train the actual or train anything to like out with output or with any close to proximity to failure so it just becomes one of those things where the more and more i see people do it the more and more i kind of realize like it's just not the best way that i can spend somebody's time in coaching the best way that i can spend somebody's time is if i need to take a little bit of time off of something Remove it for a week or two, and then find an entry point that's going to be slow and easy to get them back into, but allow them to progressively overload it week to week. Because if we can't progressively overload it week to week, and they're doing the same thing over and over again, the carryover is just not going to be there. Like a great example that we could that I could go into without like naming anything super specific is a lot of the like the ground based like uh, hip resets or like pelvis reset drills for somebody who squats even three hundred pounds. Right. Like if you're a 200 pound man who squats over 315 and you're laying on your back trying to reset your pelvis into position and you stand up and you load 315 on your back, well, you now have something heavier than your body weight on your back, which is going to mess with your center of mass management to begin with because it's on your back. So it's going to push your rib cage forward in space. You're going to be in a slight hinge. So now your center of mass is over your foot, is like your body weight is pressed over your midfoot, but the bar is actually your center of mass now. So that whole thing that you just did to try and reset your pelvis and everything like that, where you're trying to move your rib cage back and get your center of mass over your pelvis has now just been replaced with a barbell. And now, as soon as we get into that position, all that I see these people doing is trying to replicate the same movement and just flexing their lower back the entire time, because it's not even a neutral spine anymore. And it's making squats look worse. The load is going down and they're just looking at it and going, well, my back didn't move. And it's like, yeah, but... It was also 170 pounds as opposed to 315 that you normally squat. So like, who cares? It's not
2: specific at all to the sport. We, we needed that T-shirt. There's no stacks in the jungle. Yeah, but but no, I, I think that's because that is something. Like I remember seeing a you know probably over a year ago at this point, but somebody who was working with a super high level, like 800 pound plus squat, and the the gentleman apparently had a hip. It was shift a 1,200
1: pound longer. single ply squat.
2: Okay. So the the gentleman had a hip shift that he was trying to correct. And in the post was a body weight squat with a dowel talking about how they fixed this person's hip shift. And it's like, (laughs) you didn't fix this person's hip shift. You took the load away from this person. Those are two very different things, like put load on his back and let's see what's happening here. And you know, it's, that's one of those things. Like if I'm in the situation where I'm working with a strength athlete and we're trying to correct a, a hip shift or something of that nature, right? Like I can do one of two things: I can take the load away and have them practice on technique that at a, at a much lower load profile, which may or may not, probably not, in my opinion and experience, actually help them when they get to increased loads. Or I can do something like put them on a highly constrained hack squat with a substantial amount of load and let them where they can't really shift their hips and let them work through pushing load bilaterally through, through, through like a, an even, you know, relationship between both legs, right? Like there are things that I can do while keeping the stimulus high to mitigate someone's ability to shift their hips, right? I could do a box squat. I could do a hat field squat. I could do a hack squat. There's a lot of things, a lot of variations that I could possibly utilize to minimize that hip shift while not completely deloading that individual, still maintaining 60 to 70 percent rp uh like one rm potentially right so i can actually build capacity within trainable volumes and trainable intensities Uh, and i think that goes a lot farther from that perspective so one of the reasons why i brought up pin squats is one of my favorite corrective exercises for
1: squats we're just going to reduce the range of motion to an area where you can either tolerate the load through pain with the pain tolerance threshold number so like six out of ten is your pain tolerance threshold we're going to just keep you under that six out of ten and get you get you putting as much load as we can at that range of motion or we're using that as a way if we have a hip shift that we deem necessary to correct because I don't deem all of them necessary to correct. I'm just going to cut you at a spot where you don't shift and you're just going to do pin squats into that area so you can also learn how to then reorganize your body into load after it's come to a complete stop. Right, so there's no elastic component, there's no res- there's no stretch reflex, there's nothing like that that they're doing out of this. They're coming to a complete and total stop and then pushing up into the load again. Right, so if we're looking at something like this. That's where a pin squat can be super useful because I can just progressively lower those pins and then eventually take them away without taking any load off of that person. In fact, I might actually increase the load because they're continuing
2: to train something. Yeah. Well, that, that's the beauty of like a half field is you can overload the eccentric.
1: Yeah.
0: Quickly, I wanted to let you know about the chance to try out Performance Herbalism for only a few dollars shipping costs and get one of Lost Empire Herbs' flagship products, Pine Pollen, for free. Switching to an herbal emphasis in my supplementation has been a life-changing switch for me. Just as nature is by design balanced and sustainable, I believe that the more natural our diet and our supplementation is, the better. I love and use several Lost Umpire Herbs products that boost not only my energy, but also my strength. These include Chilajit Resin and the Phoenix Formula. You can check those out by heading to lostumpireherbs.com slash justfly and grab 15% off. If you're on the fence about the power of herbalism, I have a great offer for you, which is that you can get free pine pollen. Pine pollen is an herbal powerhouse. that is a hormonal and energy booster packed with nutrition. It's actually part of the Phoenix formula. And you can get that for free uh, along with the normal shipping fee at justflypinepollen.com. All right, let's get back to the show. I was just thinking with the pin squats, that is very similar to Dan John has talked about when he was injured, like just loaded carries. It's it's very similar. It's like you're not going you're dropping very little and although with the pin squat it's more intensity the loaded it carries it's more like just fatigue and reciprocal mm-hmm. motion it's and still some level of intensity but it's not quite the same but it, you're,
2: you're stressing the system some but it's way still though. stressful
0: yeah it's still hard it's yeah. not like hey i'm going to carry like 30 pound dumbbells around it's like no yeah. i'm going to drag a heavy sled and carry 110 pound dumbbells for yeah. x amount of distance and it's it's the key is that it's hard and yeah. I, it reminds me a little bit of um like what Tommy John has said on the show he's like, if you're hurt, the solution or your training should actually be greater a greater mm-hmm. stimulus than the thing yeah. that hurt you yeah. and that's so uh, I've, yeah I've with used all, that that's a little so times yeah.
2: from him, and that's that's where I got it from, and mm-hmm. it's just like, yeah, like it, like if and not even with injuries, right just if, if you're using a compensatory strategy that you don't want, right like if you're self-organizing in a way that you don't actually deem as being beneficial long-term like if we want to put it that way i don't want to talk about an injury risk or or anything like that but if it's just something that you don't want to happen well in order to get out of that and to stop self-organizing into that like you have to train what you where you want to be at a higher stimulus than than whatever's eliciting that response right there's there's no to give other the way nervous around nervous system a reason to select that pattern yeah, as your primary yeah, way of executing have a to task. train that as the primary, you know, route, right? And, and I think that's like the primary pathway from a movement perspective, you know? And I think that's completely missed by the entire, you know, kind of quote unquote, corrective exercise movement that we've had. I mean, really over, I mean, the last decade plus yeah. at this point, we just have new systems to, to kind of work off of. But I mean, this started with FMS and NASM, you know, way back in the day. Mm-hmm is they're all so low level right like we're giving people who squat double body weight or run marathons right and have tens of thousands of ground impacts like drills that involve like bands that not only are really progressible but they also have a force curve to where there's not even actionable force on the majority of a range of motion or something of that nature we're doing like body weight activation drills you know for for low for low volumes like these things just, they're not going to carry over to the actual task demands. There's no, from if you understand how the nervous system works and how it perceives environmental stress, there's no way that these things are going to work within that person's actual task.
1: Yeah. It's a, like an example that we could go with that is talking about glute activation, where if we're looking at somebody doing a bunch yeah. of bodyweight hip thrusts on the ground or bodyweight glute bridges on the ground versus a heavy deadlift. So let's say that person deadlifts 500 pounds right? What would the, what do you think the felt load on the hip extension component of a glute bridge would be? 15% body weight. No. So if that person is what, let's say they're 200 pounds. So let's say, and we'll drop it down to 10% to make it a little bit more even. So we'll put it at 10%. So it's 20 pounds of load per hip thrust versus one 500 pound deadlift. So it's like that person would then have to do one set of 50 to even be close to achieving a similar stimulus. That they but would from not, their single rep of deadlifts,
2: same and it's not even the, the same stimulus, right? Because the magnitude is different about volume versus intensity, yeah. right? So again, like if that person's mm-hmm. rate limiter is intensity, yeah, those hip thrusts aren't—they're not doing anything.
1: Yep. But if they suffer at right? hip extension at the top of a deadlift, mm-hmm. then you need to teach them how to deadlift with better hip extension, as opposed yeah. to giving them other things that are going to make them feel something and then not have any carry over to the actual movement itself.
2: Not even talking about the force curve on those two things, also being completely opposite one another, (laughs) where again, the primary focus of, uh, or the most load in your hips on a, on a deadlift or an RDL is going to be in the lengthened position, or at least like the mid-range position of that exercise and your hip thrust or, you know, your glute activation drill is on the, the fully shortened position with very little actual loading or stress on the lengthened position. You're literally, your back's on the ground yeah. in the lengthened position, right? So, you know, again, like we look at these things and they just, when you, when you dig a little deeper into a lot of these exercises, they just, they don't make sense based on what, what we're gonna do. They're, they're exercises that'll give people a lot of sensation, which isn't, again, not a bad, not bad. thing, yeah. but also not necessarily the thing you want for that type of task. And not necessarily the thing that's going to move you forward with that
1: one of the other things that i would look at with this too is if we're looking at the neurological component of a lot of tasks that people think need correcting versus the neurological component that you're getting out of these corrective exercises there's no there's no carryover between the two of them right if we're looking at one of them one is like a very highly cognitive activity you have to think about how to actually pose tissue into and make it feel something Versus another one where it's just going to happen as a byproduct of a task that you're looking at completing, right? So one of them is extremely high high brain and you have to think about it the entire time. The other one is just going to be something that happens as a result of you trying to do something different. So if we're looking at this, like a perfect example is the same one that I was just going into with the deadlift. Like we have to look at how to coordinate spinal extension, hip extension, and knee extension all at the same time, right? And I'm not going to be able to learn how to coordinate those in any other way, unless I'm doing something that's going to overload the system in a way that allows me to practice heavy coordination of my knee extension, hip extension, and spinal extension, right? Like leg pressing ends up being a great accessory movement for deadlifts because it's going to help you with knee and hip extension. You're not going to get full hip extension, but it's going to be a very helpful one to help you learn how to break things off the floor. But if we're looking at a corrective exercise for deadlifting, One of the best ones that I've ever found is just cluster reps. So instead of taking a set of three, I'm just going to break it down into three singles with a 10-second rest in between so you can learn how to coordinate the nervous system a little bit more effectively and allow somebody to just display a high degree of output in that given movement because the only way that I can correct something like this with a very high neuromuscular demand is to use something that's going to have that same kind of impact, right? Like Kyle was talking about. The magnitude of stimulus has to exceed what we're doing before because the nervous system has to then receive a reason that, oh, this pattern or this position is better for me to be in than this other one was. And if I can't give them that through exercise selection, then I'm not actually correcting anything. I'm actually, if anything, just adding more junk volume that's not making them better at anything in particular.
0: Yeah. It's interesting just the thought of the general thought of your ability to adapt to something is how stimulating it is to your nervous system but you could also think about what are things that make it stimulating well it's competing maybe it's even novelty do i this is new and i find it interesting you know and then maybe and and just all the little nuances i mean i always look at it a lot on a level i mean just playing basketball or team sport has always been such a like important stimulant for me i I was i don't want to get carried on that thought. i actually had a i had a follow-up to something you said matt that i think is worth mentioning because powerlifting, i feel like is is a very different movement than, let's say, like a Gen Pop person who just wants to be able to go for a jog and not feel pain or or feel better, or maybe play low, maybe they want to play pickleball or low level sports or anywhere in between, right? And to me, it seems like powerlifting being the most compressive, uh, to my knowledge, probably the most compressive thing you could do to your body. There's specific adaptations that being a powerlifter carries with it, and it seems like a lot of the corrective stuff is almost things that re-expand what powerlifting compresses, if that makes sense. And so it's like. Well yeah, you do a low level expanding movement and then you go hop back into the super compressive thing, it's just not even gonna Get be back under
1: a bar. And then you put six hundred pounds in your back again and yeah. it's gone.
0: <laughs> but but what about somebody who whose sport or movement choice is not as compressive? Like what mm-hmm. if it's I don't know, tennis or you know anything in between, right? Like so I'm just curious what you guys' just take is on uh more of the you know, corrective movement breakdowns and for Athletes who don't have the compressive demand of a power lifter, per se.
1: Okay. I was going to say, I think it all (laughs) for me, like just looking at what people like like Dr. Jared Boyd post and a lot of these other like high level physical therapists who work with these people, all of it just comes down to grading the exposure appropriately to giving somebody what they actually need. Like if we've identified, if we've got somebody who's post ACL op, right, I'm not going to not have them do leg extensions to strengthen up their quads because they need to actually learn how to strengthen their quads a little bit more effectively. So all I'm going to be looking at doing with them is picking exercises that are specific enough and and easy enough to grade the exposure on that gives them an ability to build whatever qualities they're lacking after an injury or in any other capacity and grade that exposure up in a way that's progressive enough to give them the ability to then choose that as their dominant pattern moving forward or rebuild whatever needs to be rebuilt.
2: Yeah, and it. I mean, I will also say, because I, again, I don't think a lot of people know this, but Matt also trained at a box gym for like eight years with nothing but gym pod people. Yeah. And none of them trained like powerlifters.
1: Yeah, Like he's, he's, also I don't train worked. any of my in-person people. Yeah, I still have in-person people. He's also people. worked
2: with, you know, all of these people from, you know, things that would be considered much more, you know, kind of quote unquote functional, you know, for, for normal populations. You know, I, I think the big thing here is like, if I'm looking at an athlete or a general population client who's looking for more health and they are coming in that kind of, you know, quote unquote, compressed, like very extended positioning, right? Like I will pick exercises that move them back into a more, you know, quote unquote, neutral orientation. That doesn't mean I'm never going to do exercises that drive extension though, right? Because I do want them to be able to leverage both of those positions. And being very extended, you know, again, like means two things really. It means one, you're probably not accessing a lot of flexion, but it also means you can't access the action of extension, right? They also can't extend. They're not good Mm -hmm. at that either, right? From that perspective, because they're already, you know, too close to end range. If we look at this on a, on a continuum, right? So I do want to get them to a more neutral starting point. So I will do things that like front load them and get them in a more neutral ribcage orientation. And, and maybe I do look at something like a squatty or squat, quote unquote, that gets more vertical pelvis translation and more forward knee translation. But at the same time, even within those exercises, I can still utilize constraints and loads that offer progressive stimulus, right? And I think that's where, you know, kind of going, circling all the way back to when we were talking about corrective exercise, you know, a couple of minutes ago, I'm still strength training. I'm just picking different exercise selections to strength train. I don't even look at those as corrective exercises. That's just better exercise selection. Yep you know, from that perspective, like I'm going to pick the exercise that meets my my client's demands, you know, from that perspective, or the rate limiters. And if the ability to, you know, flex, extend, or get neutral is going to be a rate limiter for that person's, you know, performance or health, like they're not able to rotate, or maybe they just have poor aerobic capacity because their their diaphragm is always ascended, you know, from that perspective. I'm going to work on getting them into a better position to you know, optimize those qualities, if you want to use that word. But that doesn't mean I'm not going to progressively add stimulus to those positions over time. right? And, and that doesn't mean that I might never have that person do a back squat if force production is the goal. It just means I'm going to get them to a position or to a point where they are able to back squat and leverage that compression and that extension, but not live there you know, for the next week because of it, you know, from that perspective, you know, and I think that's, that's just high specificity sports versus high variability sports, right? Like the irony of the, the whole movement variability movement, you know, or or whatever, you know, over the course of the last few years and, and kind of the tribes that preach this thing is they, they cut out all of the extension and compression, so it's not really variability. They're just getting people into flexion and expansion. Like if those are the terminologies we're using and saying these other two things are bad, well, that's not variability. That's just oh, I'm just going to leverage the other end of the spectrum, right? And one of the things that I've talked about with several people, kind of in these groups, is you know, especially because ISA has such a big deal to do with with these. When I'm looking at the internet and I'm looking at you know exercise selections and corrective interventions and strategies for. The, the, these practitioners are posting it's like there's like narrow isas don't actually exist I, i'd never see anything for a narrow isa everything's geared towards wides everything's yeah. about expansion there's nothing about moving people in the other direction and yeah. strength training and building in a little bit more compression retraction and extension you know from that perspective so again like i see a huge bias like, I don't actually see movement variability when I'm looking at these tribes and what I see a lot posted. I'm seeing just biasing everything to toward expansion with the assumption that that's what everybody needs. But I don't think that's necessarily the case. It's actually quite a quite a funny thing that you bring up, because when I have
1: originally went through and learned all of the expansion compression stuff, I was still working. Still
2: on Matt's timeline, by still the way. on my timeline, it but exists. If you dig back four years ago, yeah. you got ninety nineties
1: and that is the uh-huh. drawbacks. I was real angry about him too. <laughs> uh, but when I was still working in person with people, I had a guy who was a very, 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 very narrow ISA. And looking at him, the at the time that all the things that I had learned were again working on completely restoring expansion and all these other things, because I guess that's the majority of people that the, these people had seen. That's a
2: you is yeah it, right this is just-
1: but with this particular person the one the exercise and the movement that fixed all of his problems within two weeks was barbell back squats he was the only person that did it because he was just very compressed or very expanded he was very like kind of rounded over he didn't have the ability to extend his spine put a bar in his back it was like oh well, this is really hard even get in a position and then within two weeks he was squatting over 200 pounds and it was just like everything felt better his shoulders felt better his knees felt better his tips felt better because he had to like actually learn how to manipulate his center mass forward as opposed to having it continuously always push backwards and then exacerbating that issue again by front loading them and doing all those other things that would push him more into that into that pattern yeah,
0: and working with swimmers uh that was a big thing for me as I, yeah. I was just starting to get into that world yeah about four years ago i, I guess that's when yeah. it really started to yeah get more yeah. popular for five years 2018 ago. to 2019 yeah and and i think at first it is like yeah we need to re- and i do believe you know if your sport is compressive then yeah you need to do some reexpansive things to restore you know after your compressive experience but at the same time i remember that i had these swimmers who were so like just straight long spines that didn't like that really their, their pelvis like didn't tip forward they do like a a hinge or something and their back would just round and they had like mm-hmm. no ability to like I I might go to like spill the guts forward and mm-hmm. just giving them that cue to do that more compressive thing, like really improve their, just their movement quality, just the way they moved. I was like, oh, so there are people who need the other thing here and not it's just all, everybody doing context, the same thing.
2: Right. It just, yeah. and that's something that, you know, it blows me away. Like when I, when I look online, because it's, it's like what I see a lot of is, is the assumption that everybody needs the same thing. And we're just falling right back into the same old trap over mm-hmm. and over and over again, where we're not actually objectively thinking about these things. We're not critically assessing people. We're just giving them an algorithm and saying, oh, we need to you know, gain expansion. We need to be able to protract the scapulas. We need to be able to shorten the pecs a little bit from that perspective and, and close the ribs down a little bit and, and get you know better inhales or whatever. And it's just like, Yeah. For some people like that's great. That is probably going to be beneficial, but it's not going to be beneficial for everybody. There's no way it can be, you know, but when I'm looking online and again, maybe that's just my little, you know, universe, but I see very little of the inverse of that. And I think an algorithm with just bigger words now. Yeah. It's just like, you know, and it, and it gets us right back into the FMSs and, and everything else that a lot of these people are so siloed against. But conceptually, it's a lot of the same thought process. Yeah,
1: which is which is like all movement screens in general. It's one of the reasons why for my specific population, I just don't use them ever, ever at all once ever. Like I used to use them and I would use them in addition to getting SPD specific movements. So like I would get that I would get hip internal rotation or shoulder internal rotation metrics and then look at them in relation to somebody's squat stance bar placement grip on the bar for their. Like bench press, how they stand and how they approach the bar for deadlifts and how they complete the movement. And then see if, it, if any of those numbers that I would get from their internal rotation or external rotation measurements for their shoulders and their hips would actually be something that was even useful to touch.
0: I wanted to take a quick break from the show to tell you a little bit about our sponsor, simplyfaster.com. Simplyfaster.com is a fantastic coaching resource not only on the level of their blog and all the information they put out, but also on the level of their online store. With the click of a button, you can see and purchase the technology that is utilized by so many of the world's great coaches. In SimplyFaster.com's online store, you can have access to training technology such as blood flow restriction training, timing systems, including the freelap timing system, bar speed tracking devices, a variety of resistance training machines such as the K-Box, And also Kaiser training units, which Kaiser training units being strongly recommended by sprint coach Randy Huntington, for example. You'll also get access to motorized sprint training units, such as the 1080 sprint, force plates, and much more. You can check that all out by heading to simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an eye, faster.com. Let's get back to the show. Yeah. I think that it's, you know, speaking of the movement screens, it's interesting. It's like they they all work backwards and not in a good way in the sense Mm. of, I mean, these days for me, like I'll watch someone sprint or jump and that's the movement screen. Like, and then, and then if I need to break it down, Hey, maybe go line your back and do a straight leg raise test. You know, like I saw, I see this in your sprinting. I suspect this, but I feel like if you just hit someone with this array of arbitrary tests, that's the ultimate recipe for the nocebo, you know, believing Mm -hmm. all these things are wrong with you. And then, Oh, I have to, now I have to do all these correctives. You know, you got, you got you hooked on it. And I just think it's. It's so interesting. Yeah, I was gonna, that was one of the questions I was going to ask is where have you guys gone in the realm of the movement screen you know, terminology? Is it just watching the skill and then deciding yeah. you know, if you need to maybe here or there? Or Yeah, let me know what do you yeah, guys think ends, about that.
1: That ends up being exactly what I do yeah. is I'm going to yeah. watch the skill of the actual movement themselves, see how they do it at around 75 to 80% for three to five reps, which is going to be challenging enough that I might actually start to begin to see some sort of technical breakdown. And then from there, if I see anything that looks potentially counter, like counterindicated or like counterindicative of like healthy movement over a longer period of time, that's when I will look into movement screen stuff. But I will say, af- with the amount of athletes that I have, I've probably had that once in the last four years, maybe one time. And like I've worked with a couple hundred power lifters at this point. I've had one person who maybe needed something and he was coming back off of a specific injury who had just had a, like his shoulder surgically repaired. And we were like six weeks post out. So I was looking at something like that because I knew that the numbers were going to be skewed and I knew that he wasn't going to be able to get something done. But that's literally the only person I've looked at these for in the last year and a half, two years.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Mine, mine's a little, because the, And it's kind of counter counter counterintuitive especially and and it might be a little different if i wasn't remote training everybody right but because the the athletes that i'm working with typically have more variation in their tasks i actually get a little more specific within the the movements that i'm looking at because there's no way like i can watch like some a basketball players game film and get kind of an idea of maybe what some of these things are but i will look at things like again you know, based on whatever my athlete's doing, if they're an endurance runner or a soccer player or a basketball player, or if they're just, you know, somebody wanting to get more muscular or whatever, like I will look at the the task demands of those goals and kind of assess people based on those things. And I'll look at kind of movement qualities and bioenergetic qualities that that person is going to need for that, that activity and assess people on that. Like I had a basketball player a couple of weeks ago and his assessment was, you know, I had him do a bodyweight squat And he was 6'9. It was hingy. I expected it to be hingy. That's cool. Uh, That leads me into, you know, again, different exercise selections, different constraints, but not necessarily anything floor based. And I had him doing, you know, things like lateral movement and reactive stuff like ice skaters. Like, can you cut jump, change direction? Can you do some of these things that are going to be involved and probably beneficial for basketball? had him do a vertical test. And then I just had him do like a basic athlete scratch test, just to look to see kind of what his maximal range of motion for internal external rotation from a, from a shoulder perspective was. And that was it. And based off of those things, oh, and I had him run on a treadmill for two minutes. And, 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 you know, based on those things that informed me of, you know, some limitations, and then that informed me of better exercise choices. And then, you know, similar to what Matt said at the very beginning of this, uh, all is he does a kind of a, a two to three week testing phase for a lot of his people. And that's something that I got from him that I now do as well. Well, I'll create kind of an accumulation block for a lot of my people. that's almost a testing phase just so that I can see how they kind of, again, are able to accommodate and recover from increasing loads and volumes over the course of three weeks and, and getting feedback, like general subjective feedback from them on exercise selection. Uh, And that allows me to then start formulating better, you know, phases or blocks moving into a long-term athletic development program after that. So it's like, it's a three-week phase. They still get workouts. They're plenty fatiguing in in some ways. Probably harder. (laughs) In in some ways it's harder than what their actual training. The next phase is going to be. But it gives me so much information. And, And I think that's where, you know, for, for my for my money I'd rather watch somebody exercise to choose better exercise selections than watch them go through a movement screen of some sort right because it's it just gives me much better information you know from that perspective like if I see somebody doing an exercise they film it they send it to me and I see something I don't like I can change the loading scheme I can change the volume or the intensity or even the variation I can add constraints if I need to based off that to make it A trainable exercise. Right. Whereas if I'm just watching somebody doing a an overhead dowel squat, which nobody can do (laughs) very well, like it's a like, okay, it's a novel movement this person's never done. And it's a movement that's extremely hard and technical to perform anyway. Nobody does good at these things. Like, ironically, some of the most deconditioned people that I've had in the past have done the best at overhead squats because they were hypermobile and had yeah. no muscle mass or anything else. And I had a uh, I had a three, six, four,
1: 330 pound man get a perfect three on the FMS overhead squat because he was front loaded. He was able to sit back great ankle mobility, did <laughs> yeah. it really well. And I was like, yeah, no, we're not doing a lot of the things that you should be
2: able to do. Cause you're 330 pounds. Yeah. And I, I had a guy once who was just, you know, very thin and a really like low FFMI, if we want to call it that, who, it's like he could do it because, but he was hyper lax at every yeah. joint. It's like, we like, okay, like we're still going to be like sitting on some machines, building capacity, building up basic strength foundations. even know that you've got, you know, quote unquote, good movement quality. You don't actually have that good of movement quality because you can't control a lot. It. You know, so the, these are things that I think, you know, my thoughts have changed with a lot over the last decade. Like I used to teach FMS to coach to, to coaches, you know, for the, the organization that I worked for. And it's just like, I I've gotten to the point now where it's like a lot of these things just, they give us information, but they don't always give us usable or useful information. On one track. of the,
1: one of the biggest things that my, that I've changed my mind on over the last probably year with my populations is the amount of work that actually needs to be done technique wise and movement screen wise. When you pick up a new powerlifting client, because the majority of people that you're going to coach if you're a powerlifting coach when they come to you and again this is not going to be everybody but the majority of people are pretty set in their squat bench and deadlift stance like they're pretty efficient with how they move they've they've been practicing them for quite a while and they usually know what they're all going to look like so at that point any sort of movement screen that I do is not necessarily going to be completely relevant to the way that that person is actually training. And the reason why I just want to look at their, uh, look at training videos and see how they move and like what shapes they make when they're training and when they're moving through a given task at a heavy enough load is that so I can bet, so I can better load manage throughout the course of the week, right? Like if I look at somebody who has a fairly hingy squat and they squat over 700 pounds, it's like, okay, well, that just now qualifies as a hip hinge. And I just need to reduce your hip hinge volume a little bit more <laughs> throughout the course of the week. Because I'm not going to change this if you have a very low bar and this is just how you squat and this is your strongest squat stance. I'm not going to do something that's going to remove from that. I'm just going to learn how to better load manage and just check those off on a different box or in a different like load column than I would if it was more knee dominant, slightly more upright squat. So I just want to look at what kind of patterns I'm seeing these people use and use that as a way of quantifying load management and prescribing out sets per week and then watching how they react to training over the course of that given month.
0: Yeah. Last uh last question for you guys is warm-ups. So you know, all this being said, I, I think that corrective stuff, prehab, whatever, kinda goes mm-hmm. hand in hand with this long extended warm-up. And I remember back when I first started as a full time strength coach, it's like you go and it's like, Oh yeah, here's the movement prep and everyone else is doing it. And then I kinda get you know, I get caught up obviously and oh, right, yeah. we're doing this and and I remember I had a throws coach one year who comes in and it the throws at, no one wants to be the tra- the strength coach for track in because a lot of times the track coaches are writing the program so you don't have any autonomy and it's like ah. i mean for me it was about 50 50 for those first few years and i had a throws coach who would come in like he had no warm-up and i was like you have to have a warm-up like he's like how oh, the first two sets are the warm-up and I'm, like, I'm gonna get in trouble like as a straight coach because you guys don't have a warm-up and and it was fine like it was yeah. never ever a problem i mean they had come in from throwing too but even you know but then they had like a 30 minute van ride cooled down but honestly they did like two or three sets of the first exercise really light warmed up you know that was their warm-up and Boom. <laughs> it was never a problem. That that changed my perspective for sure. That that was I was probably about 30, 31 when that happened, I want to say. And yeah, it was that was definitely a good good food for thought for me. Just curious your thoughts on how you guys approach that part of it. Versus, I guess if you are trying to put things in like, you know, Kyle, you've said in the auxiliaries, if we need more movement options, you know, maybe that auxiliary is being a place for it. I'm curious if the warm-up is a place for any of that stuff, or if you save that for the back end of the workout, how you're patterning into you know your main movements of the day, warm up stuff, just general thoughts there.
2: Yeah, I mean, for me, it, it definitely falls into two categories. Where if I do have some people who they do need to work on things like positioning, and they do struggle with some movement qualities and expressing movement qualities, like that's typically where I'll just move their like traditional core work and some of the things that I do from that perspective to their warm up. And because what I'm looking at there is, it's like, okay, I'm trying to move femurs and you know off a stable pelvis typically i'm trying to move you know again like humerus and shoulder blades off a stable rib cage so it's a lot of bracing active flexion active extension based work from that perspective and and it also serves the purpose of generally getting them warm right and getting them moving prior to whatever activity they're doing and then i have some people who they move fine and they do really well and they don't necessarily want to do those other things and we all do you know Progressive sprints on like an assault bike. Like one of my favorite protocols that I'll have people do that's super time efficient is a five by 15 sprint with 45 second rest. So, again, you know, five minute total time where they start at like an RPE six or seven on the first round and progressi- progressively increase outputs until they're at pretty close to maximal output on the last round. And after that, people are usually pretty warm and pretty ramped and they might need to take a couple minute break, but then they're ready to move into whatever they're doing. I also will use it. It's funny. I posted this on Instagram today, but it's in rowing. It's called a seven pole test and it's maximal Watts on seven poles at max damper on a rower. And I'll give people like three rounds of that with two minutes rest in between. And same thing by the end of that, like people are usually pretty ready to do whatever after that, you know, and I had my guy today, who's a, who's kind of a freak show. I think he got over 1100 Watts uh, on his last round, which is a lot for that test. I've I've never gotten above like nine ten, and I was a pretty decent rower. So he's. I'd like to see what Mac could pull. He'd have to weigh down a rower. He'd have to put some yeah. some major weights on the front end of it. Yeah. But it's it's a it's a fun little test that drives some competition. It gets people psychologically stimulated, and it's a ton of output with a pretty constrained movement. Right. So it just it enables people to really express output and kind of get that neurological drive. Get some physiological qualities in there as well. So those are two things that like I'll do for people who, especially like on my high STEM days, if I'm running a concurrent program with somebody like those two things kind of are two birds with one stone for me because they will drive some, some movement from just flexion extension, shoulder flexion extension, knee and hip flexion extension, whatever, but I'll also get like a progressively ramped neurological stimulus to go with it that doesn't necessarily like over fatigue them for whatever outputs they're doing later on in the, in the session.
1: Yeah, I mean that's something that I'll, I'll, I use pretty similarly with a lot of my power lifters and a lot of the clients that I'm working with. I think one of the biggest things that I'm, I mostly use is we just use ramp up sets to get them up to a certain point, right? Where we might have some tempo work to ramp them up or anything like that. But if somebody's squatting four, like four hundred five, they're not just going to walk in, load four hundred five, <laughs> and squat it right away. And I think this is one of the weirdest things that a lot of people like seem to think about. Like looking at a power lifter or looking at somebody who is like ex- like exerting some actual load or like lifting some actual load when they start to train is' like, well, you're not even gonna warm up. It's like I just did ten reps at the bar, I did five reps at one thirty five, I did three reps at two twenty five I did a rep at two seventy five then three fifteen, then three sixty five and now I'm ready for my working sets at four oh five. I've done seven warm up sets before I even got to whatever working weight that I was gonna be doing that day. and if we look at this in terms of like my my population specifically. The easiest thing that we can do when people are starting to like feel tight or feel any kind of like negative training response or negative training effects in any of the the tissues that they're going to be training that given day is just to make them spend a little bit more time in that area in that specific movement, right? Like nothing's going to loosen your hips up for a squat better than squatting. So just maybe pausing at the bottom a little bit longer, taking a little bit more time and being more intentional on your eccentric. And things like that, it becomes a very, very simple way of continuously warming somebody up. But each rep that they end up doing ends up almost being like a quote unquote total body scan to see what areas they should stop or slow down a little bit more in so they can get through that and then work on exerting force, right? Because the thing that I would look at with the power lifter in particular, or somebody, any kind of strength sport athlete, anything that we're looking at doing where we're doing something that's going to downregulate the nervous system is going to be the opposite of the intended goal for that given training session. So something like a seven pull test is going to be great. Something like two minute, like intervals on a bike is going to be great. Progressive ramp up sets on like the actual lift that they're doing are going to be fantastic. Any of those movements are going to be a really, really good thing to do because they're going to also train the neurological system to train for output and ramp you up into a way where you can push hard. Whereas a lot of the correctives that people will do as their warm up set and as their warmups in general, neglecting all of the other stuff that's going to start getting them the, the the neurological ramp up that they need is going to shift them into more of a like a parasympathetic state, which is not going to be conducive to pushing most like max output, especially if you have to work up to like a heavy single or something like that. So I, what I would look at with this is cutting out the stuff that you don't need entirely and replacing it with something that's going to be a slightly more specific, a little bit more intentional. Taking it more seriously when you're doing so, and then allowing you to really just ramp it up in a way that makes sense progressively over time,
2: yeah, I, I think, think that taking serious is actually mm-hmm. super important because yeah. a lot of the yeah a lot of the times that I see people doing like the more traditional kind of again quote unquote corrective warm ups they're completely going through the motion
1: that's why I wanted to list taking it seriously because yeah. a lot of times I'll see people who will like they'll go to work on bench and they will literally just one rep, one rep, and they'll, they'll they'll go and they'll be ready to go right away. And it's like, they didn't set up the same. They didn't do any of the other things the same. And like, this is something where I agree when people talk about taking each rep, like it's a top set is because you want the intention to be similar to whatever you're going to be putting your maximum amount of effort into, but you also want your setup and the way you're trying to execute the movement to be as close as you possibly can to it. Every single time you go to approach the bar and you go to do something with the bar, right? Because And if we want to look at this, like, number one, neurologically, it's going to train you to, like, be able to express more output in that given position, right? But number two, why would you then go to do a slightly different position movement for something if you're going to change it later on down the line, right? Like, if I'm tight in my shoulders and my pecs, I want to arch as high as I possibly can and work on just controlling that bar down so I can loosen up my shoulders and make them feel a little bit better in that specific area where they feel bad. like that was exactly what i did today like my my i benched this morning and my shoulders felt terrible going into bench so what i did was i just got myself into as high of an arch as i could and i gave myself an eight to 10 second eccentric on my first reps was 155 and then 264 right so i just slowed it down as much as i possibly could paused it for a lot longer than i than i should have with a little bit of tension pressed it up hold, held it for a little bit longer off the chest and then pressed it up and completed the movement and within three reps my shoulders were
2: good I love how your kilo weights represent my (laughs) pounds
1: weights. I did not bench 264 kilos. I wish I did.
2: (laughs) No, no. um, I I think, and I, so for running similar thing, like I'll typically just do, you know, two to three rounds of 20 meters of lateral runs, backwards runs and skips. And then kind of the same thing, go through like an extensive circuit where I'll go through like three to four to five variations of extensive ply metrics. And I vary those up, usually session to session. So over the course of a week, I get a lot of different exposures. And and then I'm typically ready to go start running. If I'm doing sprints again, like I'll kind of work my way from tempos into sprints. If I'm doing longer distance stuff, I'll just kind of break right into it. But I can get myself from a lower leg complex and and stuff like that kind of warmed up and ready to go in in under 10 minutes a lot of time and then kind of get to where I'm ready to actually begin my session.
0: Yeah. One of the things that's been sticking with me ever since I first trained with Paul Cater in Monterey, California, about nine years ago, I want to say it was the first time we trained together. But the idea of, I I mean, for me, I I like to give the, you know, Matt, you talked about like ramping up slowly throughout Mm -hmm. the session. Like you don't just step in and hit close to your max after three sets, which I think a lot of like strength and conditioning programs are kind of notorious for. They do a movement prep. Then they do like the heavy squats and then they ride auxiliaries down like the rest of the time. It's like this yeah. super front loaded system. And I like the idea of it like as a song, like when's the crescendo of a song? I don't know, about half to two two-third, two thirds of the way through the song is like the peak. So I'm like, all right, well, if we're hitting our, whatever our heaviest thing is, is for me, it's kind of there. But everything up to that needs to be like very serious, but I mean, not serious in the sense of like somber, but fully intentional. So I think that's yeah. why games have become so popular and yeah, and I use those I, as much as I can when I have the groups to do it. But even when I don't, I'll, I'll have, if I have one-on-ones, I just have a doll rod and I make up all sorts of ways to challenge them with the doll rod. So I have to dodge it and like different ways, like, and uh, different ways to jump over it and you know, get on the ground and do bear calls And so just like, you know, for me, but, but intensity is the key because if it wasn't like, it, it's, it's so easy when it is a corrective to honestly not see the point because you don't feel it. You're like, oh, I think this is yeah. doing this thing. I'm not really feeling it so but I know I'm supposed to be doing it and I know it's gonna make my training better, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but I mean for it's like I, I look at it more for me, I, I like like the end, like hitting like a hard ISO hold at the end that's relevant to the needs of the athlete is usually pretty good to I'm um, like if we're getting our stuff for that, you know, I think that's helpful. Um sometimes though too, even with running, I've I've been doing this, this year more and more is I'll warm up for running literally zero warm up. And then it's funny cause the older I get, it's like when I was in my twenties, I warmed up a lot and now I'm 39 and I'll like, I'll do this sometimes is just, and I, and ISO hold like an ISO lunge, and then I'll run like a 150 easy. Then I'll do another yeah. ISO lunge and a longer, like maybe the first one's 30 seconds, maybe the second one's 40 and I'll just keep going up, like get to 60 or 70 and I just keep going a little faster, going a little faster. Cause everything, like you said with the bench, like it's all your thing. It is the thing. It is intentional. You can't do it. And I know when I was younger, too, I, sometimes I wanted to escape from my, like, you find ways to escape from the main skill if you're having trouble with it, like maybe mentally, psychologically, you're not doing as well as you want. I saw this in swimming a lot. Is I yeah. saw swimmers, I saw basketball players in the room, too, or other athletes who, they weren't doing that great in their sport, so they actually would, like, make it up by going in the gym and grinding it out even harder, which is, the strength coach loves it, that's cool, but, like, they're also using it as an escape, because, oh, yeah. of course, it, you know, Matt, your example, like, that is your sport, of course, but, yeah, you know, I, I find that. The warm-ups that it's like we want to find, we don't want to, but we unintentionally are escaping the exact thing we need to be training all the time. Yeah. And
2: well, yeah, the sport guys started doing the accessory Olympics. Yeah. That's my Olympic. people. Yeah. <laughs> I did that myself. Everything but the big three. I did that doing, myself for a little yeah. while too. And like
1: my, my training and my previous prep was a lot more complicated than my prep is now. And that was one of the things that I did was if I had a bad squat bench or deadlift session, I would just try to go quote unquote make up the volume on something different. It's like, yeah, I mean, that's cool, but you wanted to bench four fifty and you only benched two twenty five today and you stopped because your shoulders and elbows hurt. And then you went and got a bunch of dumbbell benches in. It's like that didn't really not really gonna help you that much. It's fifty percent. Like
0: <laughs> Yeah, it's so interesting to put that in perspective. It's it's cool yeah. too to like just the differences we have in our sport, you know. Populations and the kind of you see the same themes, but you see them in a different way, and I, it yeah. definitely helps to see the whole better. So, uh, but hey, I, I think that's uh, about all the time I have for the show today. Great talking to you guys! Thank you so much for coming on. I, I don't know if you guys have any last thoughts or anything to wrap up. What we've been chatting on, or if not, I think covered a
2: lot. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. My
0: <laughs> brain's like, <whew. laughs> awesome. But well, hey, thank you guys so much. I really appreciate you guys taking the time and and good to sit. Thanks down. a lot for I, having us on. Yeah, you're yeah, welcome. You. Yeah, appreciate it. Thank you.